Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Limitless Estates, where Kyle and Lolita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family by using real estate as your vehicle. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. Joining us today on the show, Matt Faircloth. Matt, thanks for joining us today. How's it going? Thank you so much, Lily and Kyle. It's going great. I'm excited to be here with you. Nice. Nice to have you on the show. So here's a little bit about Matt. Matt is the co-founder and president of DeRosa Group. Along with his wife, Liz, since 2005, they have grown their company to owning and managing over 370 units of both residential and commercial assets throughout the East Coast. So looking forward to hearing more about your story. Matt, can you please tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? So so first of all, I need to update that bio because we just closed on 166 units. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Congrats. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. So we're at 530 now. So, and and we're looking at a bunch more. So we're looking, we're we're growing exponentially these days. Um, But, uh, but I mean, my, my story is briefly that I've been doing this for quite a while, for about 13 years. We got started doing the business with all of our own capital, um, self-landlording, self-managing all of our properties. Um, grew up through very small real estate, you know, single family homes, uh, a lot of small fix and flips and things like that, and just spread our wings further and further into the real estate space to the point now where we've got office buildings and um, apartment complexes and things like that, that uh, that are all part of our portfolio, and we rely heavily on private money to to um, position us where we are now. So, um, a lot of it's just through positioning win win arrangements with our our money holders that want their money to be at work for them uh, without them having to do the work, uh, mm-hmm. and we're willing to put the money to work, and, and we also give them a place to invest outside of Wall Street. So, um, and that so we find it to be a win win. We're able to grow our business that way, and they're able to build their wealth while they can keep doing what they do and love in, in their current uh, day jobs. So, Perfect. Thanks for that. So uh, when I was doing a little research on your company, your mission statement is to transform lives through real estate. Can you talk about how your company is carrying out its mission? Sure. Um, so we, I mean, obviously, as, as I think you guys would know, and as your listeners would know as well, uh, real estate just, it, it involves a lot of lives of people just, just through the nature of what it is. Cause everyone needs to, everyone touches it at some point during their day, um, whether it's through their home or where they go shopping or whatever. Um, so as, we just try to be conscious of that, of that real estate affects the lives of people. And so we feel like that we as real estate investors and, um, landlords, if you will, have the opportunity to offer transformation to people or just, you know, make their lives better through their involvement with our company. And that could, those people could be um, our tenants through providing above quality housing, you know, that they feel safe and secure and they feel great for where they live. Uh, could be the folks that work for or with our company um, through providing them with unique job opportunities that give them the opportunity to grow and expand. Um, and obviously those that invest with us get, real transformation because they get an opportunity to build their wealth outside of the ups and downs of, of wall street and things that are miles outside of their control. Um, 
and investing with a company that's that's attached to them at the hip and very accessible and transparent to them as well. So um, on, on several prongs, we find that our company transforms lives. And also, we donate a percentage of our proceeds each month um, to, not, to not-for-profits. So we're a conscious... Uh, we're a conscious for-profit company, so we do a lot of charitable donations and take the the, the proceeds of our wins and um, and give part of that away to transform lives uh, through phil- through phil- philanthropic philanthropic ventures as well. So awesome! That's amazing. Thank cool. You. So you've invested in several different asset classes over the years, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Do you focus on all of them at once, or was this a progression over time <laughs> as you grew? Um. Uh, we're not looking for more office buildings right now. We're happy with the one that we have, um, but we find that that um, it just we, we needed an office building for our company at the time when we bought it. But also, uh, we we were also looking to drop anchor in, in a certain area, that being Trenton, New Jersey, which is where we first got started. Uh, so that's where we bought that office complex. Then we are primarily a residential landlording company, um, a residential land, a property owner. Uh, so a lot of our stuff is single family homes, mixed use property with, with commercial. Um, so, but our, our strategy is primarily residential real estate. We have explored and looked at other areas of real estate because our overall mission is to provide something that, that makes a difference in people's lives. And so that could be a commercial. We've looked at flex space. We've looked at mixed use. Um, we own mixed use, but we've looked at, you know, more heavily commercial assets as well. Um, but for now, our, our true training and background is in residential real estate, but we've looked at expanding into other stuff. Got it. So this, uh, the timing of this interview is kind of interesting because I just had a friend of mine ask me how I was able to get Lolita on board with uh, starting a company and, and you know investing in real estate and, and doing it together as a couple. And I know you and your wife do the same thing. So yes. what did that conversation look like at the very beginning when you're first, you know, starting up in real estate and, and going to go ahead and do this? And, and what advice would you have for my friend that did ask me that? You're taking me back a long ways. Uh, been, <laughs> Liz and I have been married almost 14 years and everything like that. And we've always been business partners. Liz and I were business partners and, and we, Liz and I were buying real estate while we were dating together. Okay. So before we were even married, we were buying real estate. So um, talk about that's and that's some some craziness right there. Talk about being committed, right? So, uh, yeah, not even committed because we're married, just committed because like you know we own property, <laughs> right? Uh, and that. So um, I, I the conversation had to do with what we wanted out of life together, and um, and how we wanted to get to that goal of of what we wanted life to deliver us. And so I, I think that that's how we got each other on board. This wasn't like, you know, me get her on board. She, get, she actually got me to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And, um, and that turned my head to it. And then I was like, hey, listen, I'm all in. Let's do this. And so we started looking at properties. And I bought a um, single family home that I lived in. And we both have been willing to accept the, um, just the lifestyle that real estate ownership has provided us. And sometimes it's, it's like having to compromise. Like, you know, me, when we were dating, having a couple of roommates running around, even though I had plenty of money to, to own my own home and not have to have roommates. It's what we knew we were doing for our real estate ventures and to try on landlording under, in a safe, secure place under our house and under our own roof. Under our roof. So um, I think that um, it, we've always been on the same page with regards to what we want and the vehicle of real estate to get us there. 
Awesome. Yeah. I mean, and, that's the and same. To go one step further, when, when I, when I, sorry, when we got married, we agreed that we would buy a house below our means and, um, and uh, live off of her income that she would be the breadwinner while I spurred off and started our company. That kind of sounds familiar to us. (laughs) Because that's exactly what's happening here. Yeah. And I think it's uh, like you said, it's an alignment of goals, right? It's sitting down talking about your future and and Uh making sure that you guys' goals align because that's where it all starts. So who's going to be the breadwinner and who's going to be the entrepreneur between you two? You're raising your hand. You're you're going to be the... No, uh, Kyle just um, quit his full-time Atta boy. job. boy. There you go. So We're doing full-time. it. <laughs> there you go. She's, she's the breadwinner for sure. So, <laughs> right. No, Liz was too. And, and she, you know, won plenty of bread and enough to pay our mortgage. But we could have afforded a two to three times more expensive home when we bought our house. Mm-hmm. But we chose to buy at, at a lower price. To, to make, I mean, some, some people say, you know, delayed gratification and everything like that. I just think that we were just thinking of the big picture and thinking mm-hmm. of like, if we had bought a larger home, then I would have, I would have had to stay at work or made decisions based on money because we did that. I didn't have, we didn't have to make decisions based on our income. We were mm-hmm. able to, you know, income was, you know, personal expenses were met through what she was doing and then some. And, you know, then we were able to spur off and do um, on our own. So made all the difference. It really did. Yeah. We even delayed having kids a little bit. Not that that's if you guys want to do that or not, but we delayed that a little bit until we felt comfortable, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Awesome. So switching gears a little bit, how often and what type of communication do you pro- to provide your investors once a deal's closed? And what I mean by that is you have a deal, you close it, you have your investor pool, where does the communication come in after that? Mm, is it is it after we close? Because yep. the communication for us begins um, before we even, uh, and I think it's just uh, through a lot of SEC regulations and things like that. Um, it's important to have communication with investors before the property is even under under ownership, or even before um, the property is even under contract. Before we even find the deal, I try and be in conversations with my investors to get to know their goals. And um, I think conversation. The short answer to your question, Kyle, is as early as possible. You have that conversation. Um, that's the initial first conversation, um, and just get to understand the investors' goals, what they want, what they don't want, what their resources are uh, they, they bring to the table. Retirement accounts, because you can invest those in real estate if you know how to do it, and we do, and we're able to show them how to do that. Um, uh, what all are they bringing uh, to the table, and where do they want to go with what they're bringing? Um, then we tell them how we do what we do, and we see if there's an alignment. And if there is, then we put them in our wheelhouse on our short list. And once we have a deal, then we give them a call and see if they're interested. Um, once we're under ownership, we send out uh, the standard stuff weekly or um, monthly uh, email reports and financial statements every once a quarter. And we do a conference call and um, we do a lot of the regular communications with our investor base to keep them abreast of what we're doing. And also, I have a YouTube channel, and so I sh- I'll shoot videos from my YouTube channel. Um, and send them to investors as well. So, got it. Yeah, and that's what I was looking for. I think it's really important to, you know, even after the deal is closed, to mm-hmm. update them on how the deal is doing, whether it's good or bad. You know, yeah. people want to know how their investments are doing and, and what the business plan is and how it's being carried out. And mm-hmm. the more information that you can provide for them, the, the better. And you know, then you're not sitting there wondering what the heck is going on. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think it's about having that transparent um, that, that uh, folks that are doing passive investments like this should look for someone, look for a, a syndicator or an operator uh, or a, as I call in my book, um, a, a deal provider. There's two things, a cash provider and a deal provider. Uh, the deal provider should be very transparent or as transparent as possible. That's what cash providers should look for. Um, a lot of investors ask the question whether the sponsor will be putting skin in the game or their own money into the deal. What's your view on sponsors putting their own capital into deals? Um, it depends on the deal. Um, I think that, that you can't discount what the sponsor's doing already. Um, and you can't discount the sweat equity they're putting in. You can't discount the relationships and the contacts and all those things that they're bringing to the table. Um, and obviously, they're, they may be even personally guaranteeing the loan or at least sponsoring the loan, putting their, putting their credit out there and everything like that, um, and their livelihood on the line as well. Um, the sponsor actually stands to lose quite a bit more than the investor does. The, the investor is limited to their investment. Um, the sponsor um, has arguably an unlimited hole that they could fall into if the property doesn't do well. So, um, so that's a that's what I would say is we can't discount how much the GP is already putting in. But um, we do at times. We don't always. We do not always put money into our own deals. We don't make it a, a standard to do so. Um, but uh, we do um, at times. But you also have to remember is that as a sponsor, we typically have several deals in the pipeline or a lot of things going on at once. Uh, and so when we have free capital, we'll put it into the deal. And when we need to preserve our capital for the next thing or for something else we're in the middle of or something like that, we may not. Um, but uh, I think that with the right conversation with partners, um, with investors, it's not a sticking point um, and everything like that. So that's, that's what we found in our experience. Okay. You've been investing in real estate since 2005. So you've been through the downturn, um, which some have not. So looking back, what are the key factors to focus on in that type of environment for an investor to be successful? Um, I think that it, it's the, the, what made us successful through the downturn was to quickly figure out how to um, make an opportunity in a changing market. And I think that's the same now. Um, back then there were a lot of properties that were underwater. There was a lot of properties that were owed, that owed, um, X, but were worth a, a small percentage of X, right? So we figured out how to do short sales, um, for to negotiate the bank to take less and things like that. And the bank started to become willing to take haircuts and sell properties at a, at a discount and things like that, that enabled us to be successful in that marketplace. Um, that's short sales are very uncommon now. Um, they're not as, they're, they're, they're not as done as frequently as they were back then. Um, but that's only because the market has changed, right? So, um, I think that what allowed us to be versatile then, and still allows us to be versatile now is just, um, continuing to read the market. And I think that if the market changes or I'm, I'm not a doomsday thing where I think this thing's about to crash or whatever, that's not me. Um, but if the market changes, then we'll figure out how to opportunize the market that we're in. You know, um, and I think that's imperative that for right now, syndicating multifamily deals makes sense to us. For right now, buying dilapidated property and either doing new construction and selling it makes sense. Um, that may change as the market shifts, but um, I don't want to paint ourselves with the brush that that's what we're going to do forever. Right now, we're very present to the market and that's what we're providing. Uh, that's, the that's the flavor of ice cream we're selling right now, but that may change. If, um, if the market, if, and when the market changes. Got it. So maybe I'll ask another way. And I'm, 
apologize for not prepared for this question, but so if in 2006, let's just say you're purchasing multifamily, what are some of the key factors you could have done to we set yourself do up? Oh, you didn't? We were, no, no, it. it was, it's not that that wasn't the right. It, uh, and that, it, but that goes back to my, to my answer. Multifamily was not the market. It wasn't the place to be in 2006 um, for a lot of reasons, because interest rates were higher. Uh, property prices weren't as attractive. There wasn't as value. There wasn't a lot of value add play. A lot of corporations were in multifamily back then um, and stuff like that. And so they've, they've shifted from there and they've gone into single family homes. Um, but that, but, but um, it was, uh, it was not as attractive of a space in 2006, 2007, 2008. So, Got it. Um, okay. And you yeah. briefly touched on it, but what are your feelings on the state of the market and where real estate will be in the next 12 to 18 months? You mentioned multifamily um, mm-hmm. a little bit, but what about the mm-hmm. overall real estate market? Well, I think that what's going to drive the change is that rate is, is, is interest rates. And so um, I think if the stock market, you know, has a big tank or something like that. They probably will forgo raising interest rates to, which would drive it further uh, down. Um, if the stock market stays up, they'll start to creep. I think that the Fed will believe will start to creep up interest rates. If that happens, that will start to pull back the real, the commercial um, multifamily housing market. Um, if the stock market uh, does take, I, I think it all traces back to that, right? So if the stock market does take a dip in companies that are relying on the publicly traded companies that are relying upon their stock price being up for them to stay profitable um, uh, as, as a company, uh, we'll start to uh, do some layoffs and we will probably, probably push us into a recession, unemployment will go up and that'll probably drop back to vacancy in, um, in some areas that we, that, that, that real estate, that just it may increase vacancies or it may increase, it may increase collections um, in that. So I think that um, I don't see anything that would cause a drastic crash. And I think people, they, the only reason why people could say that multifamily is going to crash or multifamily is going to have a major correction is, is that it's gone up a lot. Um, but there's reasons for that too. You could trace that back to the crash of 2008, 2009, because a lot of homeowners used to be homeowners now shifted or being renters in that market um, in that time. But they haven't really not, there's not been a huge increase of homeowners as the market's gone up, gone back up the housing market. So I don't see multifamily being propped up. I just think that it will pull back a bit. Maybe we might see a five to 10% adjustment in some areas. Um, the place where I think multifamily is at risk the most is in your A plus class properties. Um, and, uh, and that, and if you look at rents in those type of A plus class assets, uh, rents have gone way up. Uh, I mean, there's people paying four or $5,000 a month in rent in some areas that were paying quite a bit less, not too long ago. Um, and that, so I think that, those rents will start to shift if there is a shift in the economy because people will start to pull back and tighten up their purse strings. So um, we typically play in workforce housing uh, as a company, meaning like C-class assets, uh, folks that are earning close to the median income of the area where they're in. So we don't do A-class assets. We rarely even do B-class assets. We have a few of those, um, but we mostly do um, C-class assets, you know, just just middle of the road stuff. Um, we found, cause we've always owned that kind of stuff. And we found that that type of real estate is, um, is very, uh, some is a lot more recession and dip proof than other stuff is. It just doesn't see much appreciation either. So um, that's why it's a very long winded answer, but it's a, it's a complex, it's a complex conversation because multifamily is not just multifamily. There's different classes, there's different regions, different neighborhoods, different uh, cities uh, and everything like that. But that's, that's a broad brush on what I think the next 12 to 18 months is going to look like. 
Yeah, no, perfect. And real estate's local, right? And so there's over almost 400 MSAs. So all of them do not react the same way. Right. So. Okay. So if a passive investor is looking to invest in real estate, where's a good place for them to look for active investors who have a good proven track record? Um, they could try uh, the crowdfunding portals. I don't, tr I mean, I've looked at a lot of those places. That's where a lot of passive investors that I talk to tell me they start because I talk to a lot of passive investors that want to consider investing with us. And so a lot of them tell me, well, when I look at your deal and I compare it to the one that I see on Realty Mogul or something like that, um, the, your internal rate of return or your deal doesn't look as good and everything like that. So I have to kind of position ourselves against that, but that, that is a good, that is a place where a lot of passive investors go. I think that folks should go either in their own backyard, um, and start looking for people that are investing or doing deals close geographically to them if they want to see where their money's growing physically. Um, or they can go on websites like biggerpockets.com. Um, they can, you know, look for referrals for folks that they may know. Um, it's somewhat of a relationshipy, networky kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and they should also just look for the education sites that active investors play in. And you'll find that there's folks that are, you know, kind of at the, doing a lot of the teaching or the talking heads for those organizations, for those, um, uh, for those organizations where, where people that are active investors go to learn, to look, to see who's, uh, you know, kind of the mentors at the top of those organizations. Perfect. Uh, I believe Lily is going to take us into our final four questions now. All right. Perfect. Thanks, Matt. Um, let's go ahead and go into the final four questions. You ready? Sure. All right. So what is the one tool you use in real estate investing that you could not do without? Hmm. We do a lot of, um, we do a lot of, uh, apartment buildings. And so there, a tool that we use for evaluating our deals is something called the syndicated deal analyzer. Um, in that, and that's, you know, a guy, guy by the name of Michael Blank uh, developed it and we use that software. It's a, I mean, listen, it's Excel is what it is, but it's on, it's, it's a very, very good version of an Excel spreadsheet. Um, and that and we've been a fan of it. We've used it for deals. I'm not sure how we would underwrite complex multifamily property without it. Um, I'm sure there's something else out there, but we found that to be the best option for underwriting multifamily deals. Yeah. Nope. Kyle and I are very familiar with the, uh, Michael Blanc's SDA. So mm -hmm. it's great. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate and uh, what is the main takeaway for our listeners? So I wouldn't call this a mistake because I'm not sure how I could have avoided it aside from doing a little more due diligence or maybe just not, just not, just, uh, you know, asking, asking somebody different for help. Um, but, uh, and I'll, I'll be brief about it. I talk about it more in my book. Um, and, uh, the story is out there in, in the space on some other, um, venues that I've been on and everything like that. But in a nutshell, we sold an 18 unit apartment building and we had planned on doing a 1031 exchange to roll the money from that um, sale into the purchase of a much larger asset through something called a tenant in common. Um, meaning, you know, one that company was going to own a little slice of the property along with a larger company that we would then raise more capital for. Right. Um, so we sold the 18 units successfully you know, celebrate closing, everything's great. Roll the money over to a third party 1031 custodian. And um, it turns out that that custodian through a very long story uh, was a bad actor. And I had gotten myself in with someone who was, doing, was running a Ponzi scheme, meaning that they were taking the money and they were um, 
you know, not, they, they, they had not planned on, they, they were going to give it back to us, but uh, they, they, I just happened to catch them when the carousel was ending and that. So they, they had been running a Ponzi scheme for years, um, but uh, they, the, the, the Ponzi scheme ended while they had my money. So just kind of bad luck, if you will. Mm-hmm. They had plenty of great ratings. They had lots of great reviews. They had good referrals because they had run an upstanding business for all these years. But then, um, but then uh, it, it came out that they were actually taking the money that people were giving them through their 1031 exchanges, buying themselves real estate assets, um, you know, d- doing things that weren't that they were supposed to be doing. They were supposed to be just holding the money in escrow, um, and they were doing other stuff with it. And then people would give them more sales revenue um, from other sales properties, and they would use that sales revenue to pay back to people that they had squandered. And you know, and so as long as the money kept coming in they were, mm-hmm. they were okay, but the money just stopped flowing at some point when I was with that, when I had, they had my capital and, um, in that. So what we ended up doing, and that this was a significant amount of money, this was $700,000, uh, that got, that got, um, tied up in this thing. Um, so long story short, uh, what, um, what ended up happening was, uh, we were going to buy, as I said, another apartment complex with that capital. Um, my side of that deal was 30%. That $700,000 was just going to buy 18%. So I talked to my partners that I was splitting that 30% up with, and we had agreed to give those investors that had gotten, that were part of that 18-unit um, property, we gave them our ownership of the new mm-hmm. property. So I own this larger property in North Carolina, and um, I don't own much of it because these investors that um, that were invested in this, uh, in this other project that sold, um, I needed to cover them. And that, so I still have some ownership. I'm still very invested in the deal and very committed to the deal. Um, but um, but it, it, at, at the bottom line, I put my investors above my own well-being. And I could have gone to my investors and said, "Hey guys, we got robbed. You know, let's all figure this out, and uh, we'll we'll go and and, and recoup much of, as much of it as we can." Um, but I shouldn't feel right doing that because I think that as a custodian, I view my company to be a custodian of people's wealth, and so we mm-hmm. wanted to cover them. Um, and so that's what we did. Now there is beginning to be a happy ending of this whole thing because I went on to bigger pockets and I found a bunch of other investors that had gotten swindled by this guy. And it turned out that he had taken over 6.5 million, um, at the time that th- that's how much was left outstanding when our money got, um, w- w- was tied up with him. So we formed a class action suit, me and these other investors that I met on VP. Um, and we've just gotten the first round, a letter, uh, from the attorneys that there is going to be a first round of settlement. Um, now that's, there's going to be two more rounds, but it looks like, um, it looks like we're going to get made whole, I believe. Um, or not even we, our investors are going to get made whole, Mm -hmm. Uh, but in an effort to cover them, I made sure that, that, uh, that they weren't standing out in the cold, that I knew that they were covered somehow. So I gave them the majority of my ownership of that property just to make sure that they were, um, that they were covered. So long answer, but that is a, uh, that is a true horror story and it's possible what can happen. And I think that the message to your folks that are listening, that are looking to do passive investments, you got to make sure that your syndicator is willing to do the right thing for you when things go well. Don't always go well. This is real business. It's not always sunshine and roses. A lot of times it is, but sometimes it's not. Yeah. Great advice. That's great. Uh, what is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? Um, I need to focus on doing only what I'm great at because right now in a few areas of my business, I'm doing things by necessity. Um, but I need to get out from the, um, 
the doing of those things uh, and, you know, bring in help, bring in, you know, assistance and things like that, because we can afford those things. I just am so used to doing things myself that I do them myself, even though I probably shouldn't be, if that makes sense. Um, <laughs> in that, so I, I probably should be outsourcing more and just really focusing on what my God-given strengths are, because we all have those. But I think that a lot of people in life do what they're great at, along with other things that they that they stink at. And I think that when things fall apart, it's because they typically did something they shouldn't have been doing. They should have got somebody else to help them with. So. Um, so to get my business to the next level, uh, I really only want to focus on my greatness. That's it. And then get other people to do what they're great at alongside me to help bring us to the next level. Great. And Matt, lastly, where can people find out more about you? Um, so my company's all, uh, a lot of what we do is online at derosagroup.com, D-E-R-O-S-A-G-R-O-U-P, derosagroup.com. They can find us on that webpage. Uh, or they can also find us on YouTube um, in that for our YouTube page, which is just YouTube forward slash DeRosa Group. And there's a lot of uh, educational videos that we have out there. And if they want to hear more about um, other things that we offer to our investors, that is on our webpage as well. And they can sign up for, uh, to, to speak to us about, uh, about things on there. And they can also buy a copy of my book, uh, Raising Private Capital, which is how to structure arrangements with um, private investors and deal providers. Um, that I that um, that I wrote for biggerpockets.com and that book is available through my website as well. Fantastic. It goes to show that it's possible to invest in multiple asset classes and be successful in each particular one. Mm -hmm. So uh, I will absolutely have to pick up that book of yours because I know that Kyle's already read it. Hmm. Um, congratulations on all the success so far and we'll be looking to for forward to hearing more from you in the future. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, guys. This has been a lot of fun conversation. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show and everyone else. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Pat. Yes. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the passive income through multifamily real estate podcast and to get access to today's show notes and to previous shows, visit limitless-estates.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode.